This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for April 21st, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, so many seamounts. Staff news writer Paul Vusen joins me to discuss a study that nearly doubled the number of these submarine volcanoes. Next up, how do mammals that spend 90% of their time in the water get any sleep? Jessica Kendall Barr is here to talk about her work exploring the sleep of elephant seals by capturing their brainwaves as they dive down deep to get some sleep. And in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, assistant editor of custom publishing, Jackie Oberst, talks with addiction researchers, Eric Nessler and Paul Kenny, about what researchers have discovered about addiction over the last five years and where the field is going. Only about 25% of the ocean floor has been charted or mapped. We don't know where all the big dips like trenches are or the big peaks like seamounts. We don't know where those are either. Today we have staff news writer Paul Vusen. He wrote this week about a study that nearly doubled the count of known seamounts. Hi, Paul. Hello. Why is the ocean so mysterious? Why don't we know have more of it mapped? What's the holdup here? Well, uh, just a lot of water. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What uh, oceanographers will always tell you is we know the surface of the moon or Mars better than we know the ocean, which is true. It's just, uh, you know, all that water kind of gets in the way of seeing what's down there, 4,000 meters, 5,000 meters down. And the best method we have for doing this is sonar. You know, it's acoustic pings, Mm -hmm. but that requires expensive ships. So even with a big push in recent years to do mapping better, we're only at 25% 25% of the ocean mapped with sonar. Your story actually opens with a collision, at least the draft that I read. So there are unmapped areas where ships spend time and they can run into seamounts. That's that's actually a thing that happens. Well, ships usually don't, but submarines do. There we go. That makes more <laughs> sense. Yeah. So this is a particular hazard for submarines because, you know, a lot of the closest seamounts that are closest to the surface are known or they're islands. But uh yeah, you can even see them kind of underwater if they're close enough to the surface with satellite imaging. But yeah, there's a couple of famous incidents where the U.S. Navy has run into uncharted seamounts, including most recently uh, a year and a half ago in the South China Sea. 
So the new study did not use sonar, which is kind of the standard, what people might expect for mapping underwater. What technology did they use instead to try to find all these seamounts? Yeah, so this is building off a technique that's been used for a couple of decades where you have these radar-equipped satellites that measure the height of the ocean worldwide. These are the satellites that provide us with sea level rise from climate change, but they can also, they can detect changes in slope in the water at the ocean surface. And these can indicate gravity of seamounts underwater, kind of bunching up a little bit of water above them. And so with those little slopes, these changes in the angle of the water, you can make a pretty pretty good guess of the seamount and depth of the seamount. So the new study did this worldwide. And how many new seamounts were identified or mapped in this research? 19,000, over 19,000. And how many did we know about before? I think it was about 25,000 we knew about before. A lot of those with previous kind of versions of this technique. This is just an improvement reflecting that there are more capable satellites that have been up there for you know a decade now. And you improve the resolution, you can improve the number and size of seamounts you can see. So these are especially smaller seamounts that they've been able to identify now. What's a smaller seamount? How big would that be? You know, people love to quibble about the <laughs> definition of it, but usually to be, you know, a proper seamount, you need to be, these are essentially underwater volcanoes, like a kilometer high or taller. Okay. It's pretty big, but it's still buried under a ton of water. We can detect it by looking at the surface of the water and finding like little changes in the slope. And we got another 19,000 of these seamounts. One thing I'm curious about is, is the distribution different? And we're basically almost doubling the number of seamounts. Are they cropping up in unexpected places? Are they denser or more generally randomly distributed? This is just the, the map coming out. They didn't do analyses on you know, that. More of that will come, but this has filled in kind of blank spaces. So there are a bunch around Antarctica that weren't visible before, these smaller seamounts. Also up in the North Atlantic, these were kind of just blank maps for seamounts. And all of a sudden, oh, hello, they all appear. Yeah. These seamounts are volcanoes. So where they are and where they form can tell us something about what's going on with magma, with the crust, with tectonic plates. Yeah, these have been used in the debate over hot spots and like mantle plumes. Because, you know, a lot of them are around mid-ocean ridges, right, where the tectonic plates are spreading apart and you get magma coming up. Others are due to hot spots like the Hawaiian chain of islands are your classic chain of seamount islands. And the kind of number of them, the volume of them can inform these type of debates. Very cool. Seamounts really, they just have so many implications. When you first mentioned this, this story in a meeting, I was like, oh, seamounts, okay, more underwater mountains. And it's like, no, this is also where a ton of sea life congregates. And it's like little ecosystems, almost like underwater islands of life. So this is going to really change our understanding of that as well. As one biologist put it, you can't protect these places if you don't know they're there. Right. You know, these are like little skyscrapers of life. They go up through the water column. Each part of the water column has its own type of life associated with it. They're very good for corals because they have hard surfaces. When you have more of these, oh, you can find interesting individual ones. You can also kind of get these bigger questions of how interconnected they are. You know, are they kind of isolated pockets evolving a distinct life? Or are they stepping stones that let life skip through the ocean to migrate across? So we've talked about magma. We've talked about sea life. 
And we've talked about not bumping into the seamounts. These are all really important results from getting the maps right. But you actually say in your story that the most important results of this are a better understanding of their effect on the ocean itself. Can you expand on that? Yeah. For a long time, there's been this big debate. So you have this big circulation in the ocean, the overturning circulation that moves all the heat and carbon on Earth. And we know why the water goes down. Mm -hmm. And we know why water goes up in like shallow areas because of wind, especially in Antarctica. But there's been a lot of debate of why it goes up from the abyss, like the deepest part of the ocean upward. It's dense. You know, why does it go up? For a long time, it was thought to go up evenly distributed, but to the mid layer of the ocean. But there's been over the past decade research showing that actually it's kind of topography, kind of turbulent breaking against topography or wakes created by topography that can allow this denser water to mix upwards. And seamounts are famously, Walter Monk, a famous oceanographer, put it the kind of stirring rods of the ocean <laughs> or the straws that stir the ocean, something like that. And it's becoming very clear that they could be in a preprint using the old atlas of seamounts, kind of the dominant force driving the upward circulation. Wow. So we're going to be able to map this better and then get a better idea of how it interacts with circulation once we kind of have a true count and a true map. Mm -hmm. How true this is. These are still geophysical. Like people will be like, well, you know, you got to go out and ping it with a acoustic sonar. But <laughs> is that what's next? There needs to be confirmation of these satellite observations with on not the ground, but on the water checks. Actually, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which is partly sponsoring this work, is commissioning Sail Drone, who has these autonomous sailboats that are now starting to carry multi-beam sonars to go out and check some of these that are, look like could be the most hazardous. On the previous catalog, NGA has actually, and its partners, Navy, have checked out 50% of them already and kind of confirmed them. Oh, wow. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah, no problem. Paul Vusen is a staff news writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Don't touch that phone, iPod, Alexa, whatever. Next up is my interview with Jessica Kendall-Barr, who had the pleasure of watching seals slumber for her research. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. For mammals that live most of their lives in the water, like whales or some seals, it's not always easy to grab a nap or sleep deeply. Hanging out at the surface can make them an easy target for predators. Going down deep, means no breathing during sleep. This week in science, Jessica Kendall-Barr and colleagues looked into elephant seals sleep and found some unexpected things. We're going to talk about how they figured it out and what it means for sleeping. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, sure. 
So I outlined a few challenges of sleeping in the ocean if you need to breathe air. Was it a big question then of where they decided to sleep if they spend so much time underwater? Yeah. So we didn't know when they found time to sleep because they basically spend most of their time during these long foraging dives that go very deep and only maybe one to two minutes at the surface at a time. And what about land? Do they ever just go take a nap on the beach? Yeah. So northern elephant seals come on land twice a year, once to breed and once to molt. And they spend a lot of time sleeping during that time. But that's not the most accurate representation of what their activity budgets are when they're out at sea. Right. They don't just sleep twice a year, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. So when we start talking about the challenges of being a sea creature that needs to breathe and sleep, it really just reminds me like, about the basic mystery of sleep, why we need it, how much do we need, all these different strategies for getting it when you can, depending on where you live in the environment and, you know, how flexible can we be? Can you talk about some of the other marine mammals approaches to sleeping in the ocean, whales or dolphins or other kinds of seals? What do we know about them? You may have heard that dolphins and actually fur seals as well can sleep in just half of their brain at a time. Okay. That's called a unihemispheric sleep. And that allows them basically to keep one eye open and help monitor predators while they might be getting the the benefits of sleep. Yeah, for half their brain. And then they take a turn on the other side? Yep. Uh, (laughs) That's that's the idea. So if you had to guess, what would it be like to have sleep like this, unihemispheric sleep, like a dolphin? So I don't know that I have to guess, although we we definitely don't do it to the same extent as dolphins, but there is this documented effect called the first night effect. So when you go to a new place, you might just be slightly more aware. And there's some evidence that there's a little bit of asymmetry in the degree to which your each of your hemispheres are engaging in slow wave sleep. Again, it's probably more like asymmetrical slow wave sleep as opposed to unihemispheric slow wave sleep. But this first night effect, you know, where you're kind of generally aware of things, you might feel like you've opened some eyes or... (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) I hate it. So I don't want to be a dolphin. Yeah. (laughs) So for this study, you were looking at elephant seals. They spend a lot of time out in the water. They spend a lot of time very deep and they hold their breath. They're kind of these extreme divers spending a ton of time underwater. How were you able to see, I'm going to put quotations around that, what they were doing when they're far from shore and deep underwater? (laughs) That's definitely a challenge, especially since the, the areas where they're diving are for the most part pitch black. Yeah. So we used basically these sleep monitors that we attached to the seals, and then they were able to to take those sleep monitors to see and come back with this gold mine of data about where they went and what they did. And we also had sensors that monitor their motion in three dimensions. Something that I'm really passionate about is this ability to see and sort of experience what it's like to be a seal under underwater. Mm -hmm. So I've built these tools so that we can create data-driven animations where we see the seals sort of traveling hundreds of meters below the ocean surface, what they're doing with their bodies in terms of the pitch, roll, how their swimming behavior might change in frequency. And then 
be able to see these beautiful sleep spirals that they yeah. they do under the ocean surface. Yeah, this is just amazing looking data. It's pretty great. I wish you could show everybody who is listening, but <laughs> they can totally check out the animation online and look at the figures in the paper. They do a really good job kind of explaining. But we're going to try to say, we're going to pr- try to put it in their ears right now. So in terms of the sleep monitoring, is this what we think of when we, you know, somebody's in a sleep study and they have electrodes on their scalp? Exactly. We use the same sensors that are used in human sleep studies. And I actually tried a lot of these methods out on myself (laughs) and spent some time floating in shallow water and trying to sleep to see if it was working all right. (laughs) That is so fun. How are you able to put those on? I mean, elephant seals are pretty big. I guess we should remind people like the males are the ones with the crazy faces, but the females are also very large animals, right? Definitely. They're very big and they can be pretty dangerous. When we're working with the animals in order to ensure the safety of our own crew and the animals, they're often sedated. And then we'll have the time to work with the animal, attach everything, make sure there's no flats that are going to create drag for the animal. And then we send them off with these basically little head caps that are monitoring sleep and a little data logger on the back to store the data that we collect. So you did this with like a smaller group of elephant seals. We're going to talk about the larger data set in a minute. And so what, you know, let's talk about the patterns that you saw. What conclusions were you able to draw from the readings out of their brain and then what their bodies were doing in the water and their depth? What what did you figure out about their sleep patterns? One of the big challenges is I'm trying to interpret nine electrophysiological channels. So that's signals from what the heart's doing, what the muscles are doing, what the brain is doing. I'm also trying to look at all of these three-dimensional motion sensors and piece together what the animal's doing in three-dimensional space. So something that I found myself doing a lot was creating these 3D plots, and then I would map one of the variables onto color. So I would be able to see if the plot changed color, that was a shift in state. So one of the first things that I did is I analyze the sleep recordings on their own. So what happens for an animal, including us, as we fall asleep and go into slow wave sleep is the signals in your brain, basically your neurons start to sync up. That creates these large slow waves. And then as you transition to REM sleep, your brain waves start to sort of transition back to what they look like during waking, but you're not awake yet and your heartbeat becomes erratic. And often for humans, our bodies become paralyzed. Right. That prevents us from acting out our dreams and, uh, you know, (laughs) violent behaviors (laughs) that we might dream of. (laughs) And that keeps us safe in our bed. But you can imagine for a seal at sea that is becoming paralyzed under the the ocean. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds kind of scary. Potentially scary. So anyway, so I plotted those colors onto the 3D plot and was able to see these transitions based on color in the three-dimensional plot. And I remember this time when I switched the meaning of color from sleep state to roll. So basically whether the animal was on its belly or upside down. And I noticed that it didn't really change or there looked to be the same pattern. So I made sure, you know, I was doing my coding correctly And then I found out that around the same time that they're shifting to REM sleep, they're flipping upside down and they're starting to spin in a circle. And I think that's one of the important things that our study showed is that they're able to sleep and go into slow wave sleep while they're still, you know, they might look like they're awake, 
they're just gliding and they're they're getting deeper, right? They're belly down, <laughs> going deeper. And then they'll switch to REM sleep, flip upside down. And that's when they start to do the spiral. So if we were only thinking that they slept during the spirals, we would be really misinterpreting what the bigger picture is. Yeah. Now, is it unusual that they have REM sleep as an ocean mammal? I certainly think so. We haven't recorded sleep in any other wild marine mammal. So I can't tell you for sure how unusual that is, but right. um, I know for sure that the animals that they've recorded in the lab environment, dolphins and fur seals don't seem to exhibit any REM sleep, or if they do, fur seals may exhibit one to 10 seconds of REM sleep at a time. But what happens is their head kind of falls under the surface, they start to blow bubbles, and then they're like, oh, I gotta breathe. <laughs> right, right. So that's, a, and then they're doing the half hemisphere, the one hemisphere sleep too, right? Exactly. So it seems like maybe that unihemispheric sleep is sort of replacing in some way the needs of REM sleep, which is really interesting for us to understand the function of these different types of sleep in animals, in other mammals, such as ourselves. But it sounds like we need to do more in the wild in order to better understand what happens at different depths and in different situations for these animals. Definitely. It's possible that some of the good breath holders might be able to exhibit REM sleep somewhere safe. Yeah, we should talk about how long they're sleeping for because they are, they're going on this the slow wave sleep and you can think of it as a slow inclined slide into these deep depths. Now they're at like 200, 300 meters and they're doing this spiral down with their tail up and the REM sleep. How long does this process take? So the animals that we equipped with sleep monitors were juvenile animals with a slightly lower dive capacity. So their average sleep duration was somewhere around five minutes at a time. And those dives were about 15 to 20 minutes long, I think as long as 25 minutes. And then when we used that data to try to find naps in other data sets with just time and depth, those animals are adults with larger dive capacities and their dives were much longer, about 30 minutes, and they were able to sleep for uh, a grand total of 10 minutes per dive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's talk about this larger data set. So you took what you knew from these experiments with the, the wild animals wearing the sensors, and you kind of came up with a pattern of what sleep looked like. And then you went to another data set where the behavior and the position of elephant seals over a much larger group had been recorded. And then you could pick out what looked like sleep from the, that data set. How many animals are we talking here? How many sleep sessions are we talking here? We had a subset of data that had both time depth records and stroking information. So we could verify, okay, they're actually not stroking during this time. So it it's reasonable to call this five minute period where they're not moving at all sleep. And then the larger data set is as big as 334 seals. Uh, which is an incredible data set to work with. Dan Costa at UC Santa Cruz, who is my advisor for my PhD, has been working for over 25 years to collect time depth records and track these elephant seals as they embark on seven-month-long migrations. That's just a really amazing opportunity to extrapolate what I'm finding in a small number of seals to this population level. When you look at the population, you see these sleep dives, you see the variation in time, kind of depending on, you said their dive capacity. How much sleep do they get 
in a day on average that if this dive takes them 15 minutes and they spend five minutes sleeping, how many times are they doing that? What's a day like for an elephant seal? The vast majority of the records are these dives that go out to sea. They're called this pelagic foraging strategy where they'll go almost halfway to Japan and back. (laughs) And for those animals, they're sleeping about two hours a day. And for the longer trips, it's slightly more. And for the shorter trips, it's slightly less. And so that's sort of the typical pattern. But then there's also these animals that take a different foraging strategy and they travel up the coast. So they often go to British Columbia or the Aleutian Islands and sort of hug the coast all the way up through Alaska. And they're foraging much deeper. Some of these animals are foraging below a thousand meters. Oh, wow. Deep. Yeah. (laughs) And then they only perform maybe three or four, somewhere between three or four and and 10 foraging dives a day. And they spend the rest of the time sleeping. So they sort of flip this pattern and they're sleeping sometimes upwards of 10 hours per day in these naps that just take up most of the day. And then they're doing these deep foraging dives. So it just shows how important it is to, yeah. to look at these patterns and not assume anything from a, a single recording and be able to look at patterns of 334 seals. Yeah, I love how you call it a sleepscape, like looking across the whole population. Mm-hmm. And I mean, really, this really does emphasize like a flexibility in their sleeping patterns, which I don't know, people don't really seem to have that much flexibility. How does uh, their heart rate fit in with all of this? Is that also kind of on the extreme end of things? It's like flexible because they're diving, sleeping underwater, expending a lot of energy swimming around? It can really depend on the age of the animal and sort of how much they've built up this mammalian dive response to lower their heart rate when they're diving. But in my records, I recorded heart rates that were as high as over 200 beats per minute and as low as five beats per minute. Those recordings of five beats per minute happened after they potentially found a killer whale out (laughs) at sea. (laughs) And uh, they lowered their heart rate immediately and sort of dove back down. You can see it in the dive profile too. They got pretty close to the surface and then they decided, nope. (laughs) I think that really, again, points out the value of studying these animals in the wild doing these different activities, having all these different interactions. So yeah, I think these studies of sleep are really important so that we can figure out how, where, and when these animals are sleeping in the wild. And we can use that information to better manage and protect their critical resting habitats. Thank you so much, Jessica. Yeah. Jessica Kendall-Barr is the Schmidt AI and Science Postdoctoral Fellow at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Custom Publishing Assistant Editor Jackie Oberst chats with Eric Nessler and Paul Kenny, two experts on addiction, about the latest research in the field. Hello to our podcast listeners, and welcome to the custom sponsor interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office, and brought to you by the ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, 
My name is Jackie Oberst, and I'm assistant editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Whether it's a problem with alcohol, opioids, cocaine, or any other substance, addiction or substance use disorder is a chronic mental health condition that kills hundreds of thousands of Americans every year and impacts millions of lives. Addictions can destroy marriages, friendships, and careers and threaten a person's basic health and safety. It is a medical problem that needs medical solutions. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome two renowned experts on addiction. They are co-authors with several colleagues on an upcoming article about the science of addiction in a neuroscience supplement of science that will come out in June. Dr. Eric Nessler, who is the Nash Family Professor of Neuroscience, Director of the Friedman Brain Institute, Dean for Academic Affairs at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and Chief Officer of the Mount Sinai Health System. His laboratory studies the molecular mechanisms of drug addiction and depression in animal models. We also have Dr. Paul Kenny, who is the Ward Coleman's professor and chair of the Nash Family Department of Neuroscience, as well as the director of the Drug Discovery Institute at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. His multidisciplinary research involves the study of behavioral paradigms, physiological analyses, and the molecular underpinnings of neurobehavioral disorders such as schizophrenia and drug addiction. Eric and Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Eric, I'd like to orient our listeners to the topic. How do researchers define addiction? Researchers define addiction the same way clinicians do, and this is one of the major gaps in our knowledge. Addiction, like all psychiatric syndromes, can only be diagnosed by talking to a person or their family members and finding out what types of abnormal behaviors they exhibit. No blood test, no genetic test, no brain scan can be used to diagnose addiction. Paul, could you please also weigh in? Well, addiction is a very tricky word. I think the way that addictionologists would define addiction is a compulsive behavior that persists despite clear evidence suggesting that the behavior should stop and the behavior is directed towards obtaining drug abuse. And now I'd like to focus on why this is an important issue. What is the impact that addiction has on society? On society, addiction has a devastating consequence. I think we all know about the opioid epidemic that's gripped the U.S. over the past maybe 10 years. It's a leading cause of premature death here in the United States and elsewhere in the world. And it's not just death that is a, a negative consequence of illicit drug use. I mean, the impact really on every aspect of life and society is marked. Eric, are addiction-related deaths on the rise? If so, why? Yeah, so we, we've seen a, an epidemic of addiction-related deaths, and I, I really want to underscore this. Before the pandemic, it was reported that about 70,000 Americans died every year of a drug overdose, and the vast majority of that being unintentional. These are not people who are looking to hurt or harm themselves. These are people who die accidentally by taking too much drug. That number has increased dramatically since the pandemic. So the last data available would suggest that 100,000 Americans die each year now from drug overdose. And I'd like to put that in some perspective. I was a teenager, a young adult during the Vietnam War era. My generation was defined by that war. 58,000 American combat troops died during a 15-year course of that war and my generation was torn up over it. Yet here we are in the United States today losing 100,000 Americans every year because of addiction, and we don't seem to be able to marshal the resources to address it. Paul, your opinion on this, please. There's many reasons for the increased instance of death that we're seeing. One of the major reasons is related to just the excessive amounts of opioids that are consumed in the United States. 
the greatest quantities of opioid drugs are by far consumed in the United States. Orders of magnitude above opioid consumption in other parts of the world, but it's not just opioids. We're seeing a real clear spike in the use of other illicit drugs like psychomotor stimulants, cocaine, of course, being the example of that. Amphetamines, methamphetamine use is also on the increase, and those drugs have devastating consequences as well. Eric, what do we know about the science of addiction that we didn't know five years ago? So several areas of advances have been made. First, we now understand what it is about a chemical substance that makes it able to cause addiction in a vulnerable person. Drugs of abuse all share the ability to act on the brain's reward pathways. Reward pathways are parts of the brain that are very old from an evolutionary point of view, and they develop to regulate an individual's responses to rewards in the environment. Our behavior is shaped by rewards, the availability of food and water, sex, social interaction, and our actions are being continually refined in response to these cues in the environment. When a person takes a drug of abuse, a person has the experience as if they've had the most rewarding experience possible without actually having something useful happening to them. No food, no drink associated with it. The power and persistence of these actions of drugs on the brain reward circuitry triggers chemical changes in the brain that basically corrupt the brain's ability to analyze rewards. Now an individual who's addicted is not rewarded by natural things, things that most of us are rewarded by, but instead require the sledgehammer effects of a drug of abuse in order to feel that natural reward. And that is one of the reasons why people with addictions are driven so strongly to take drugs because it is the only way for their brains for themselves to feel normal. In addition to identifying parts of the brain that regulate these responses to drugs of abuse, we've also begun to understand the chemical changes that drugs produce in those brain regions to cause an addiction. And for that, much of the effort has focused on molecular biology, changes in the ability of certain genes within nerve cells in these brain reward regions to make their protein products. And somehow these changes in gene expression, as we would call it, drive addiction behavior. Paul, your thoughts, please. We now are in a position where we can apply really nice tools to understand the most fundamental actions of drugs abuse in the brain. You know, the, the molecular, cellular, circuit level. Also, even the underlying genetics. What kinds of gene variants are we born with that may influence the likelihood that you'll use drugs? If you use them, that you'll go off and develop a habit and the difficulty that you will have quitting. So, applications. Eric, what are the most promising directions in current and future research and treatments? There are some medications that can be quite effective. So in the case of opioid addiction, we are fortunate to have treatments like methadone and buprenorphine. The brand name for buprenorphine with a co-medication is called Suboxone. And methadone and Suboxone can be extremely effective. And I'd urge your listeners to check out a Hulu series called Dope Sick, which was really an excellent depiction, first, of what opioid addiction can be like, how it can attack anybody, regardless of their station in life. But it also depicted quite nicely that when people are given the right kinds of treatments, like Suboxone, they can really do quite well and begin to recover toward a normal life. Paul, your opinion on this, please. One of the most promising trends in the treatment of drug addiction is the fact that we're now actually seeing compounds advance through the preclinical development pipeline and into human clinical trials. 
And without those types of data, of course, we won't identify a new therapeutic. Also, without those kind of data, we won't know from moving the right direction, using the right tools and thinking the right way. So we need those types of human experiments, if you will, to help guide the preclinical drug development and the likelihood that we can generate not just one therapeutic, but you know, a whole armory of therapeutics that can address what is a very complex syndrome of behavioral abnormality. Behavioral therapies can be effective interventions for substance use disorders. Paul, what do we now know about the biological mechanisms of action of behavioral therapies? Really surprisingly little. I think that's an area of research in our field that really would benefit from a lot more attention. You're absolutely right. In fact, even the most effective therapeutic is about as effective as a behavioral intervention. And the best way currently of treating someone who's suffering from substance use disorder is a therapeutic and kind of compound that's beneficial, buprenorphine being an example, and behavioral therapy combined. Why that is the case, we really don't know. If I had to guess, I would suggest it's something around the fact that humans are social animals and that social rewards are so critically important for us as a species and that the reward circuitries that are co-opted by drugs abuse, to some degree at least, are likely involved in social reward-related behaviors. Eric, your thoughts, please. Behavioral therapies are the mainstay for addiction treatment. For the majority of people, behavioral therapies are what are available. And they're effective in some people over time, but again, with very high rates of relapse. An 80% chance of relapse within a year of abstinence, a person would go back to behavioral treatment and the cycle continues again and again. And what you hear from so many patients and family members is that a loved one has been in treatment repeatedly and still has at high risk of relapse. So to keep hope, because there is always hope, and eventually, actually, most people do kick the habit. Eric and Paul, it's been a real pleasure having this opportunity. Thank you both for joining us. Our thanks to the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai for sponsoring this interview. This podcast has been edited and condensed for length by Erica Burke, Director and Senior Editor of Custom Publishing, and me, Jackie Oberst. Thank you for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.